Hi everyone, it's Joe Wigand from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and home to the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. With their help, we're starting Teddy Talks. The April program is called 26 Days with the 26th President. Each and every day, I'll be reading at length from some of what uh, Theodore Roosevelt wrote and spoke during his lifetime. Uh, as we go through, uh, I hope that you'll understand why Theodore Roosevelt at the State Fair in Minnesota on Labor Day 1901 told the people there to speak softly and carry a big stick. You will go far. Teddy Talks are proudly presented by the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation in Medora, North Dakota. To learn more about visiting or supporting our mission to connect people to the Badlands for positive, life-changing experiences, go to Medora.com. Now, enjoy the pod. Good morning, and welcome to Teddy Talks for Wednesday, April 22nd, 2020. I'm your host, Joe Wiegand, coming to you from Medora, North Dakota, gateway to Theodore Roosevelt National Park and uh, where Theodore Roosevelt ranched as a young man in the 1880s. I'm glad I'm able to be with you uh, not only here, but also on Spotify and YouTube, something that's archived now by my friends at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation, where we will be here this summer and we'll be ready when you are to come out and uh, enjoy the open air and the wilderness uh, and uh, all that Medora has to offer. Uh, on uh, I, a note with regards to upcoming programs. Uh, first, today's program uh, is a reading of the chapter in Cowboy Land. We had a, a brief introduction uh, previously during these Teddy Talks, but I'll read that whole chapter of Theodore Roosevelt's autobiographical reminiscences in 1913 of his times and adventures here uh, in the Dakota Territory at the time and, and elsewhere throughout the region. And then on the following day, uh, uh, tomorrow, uh, we've got Citizenship in a Republic. Uh, within that speech is the famous, uh, the man in the arena. It is not the critic who counts. The author, uh, Brene Brown, uh, uh, with her book titled Daring Greatly, uh, one of the phrases that uh, is in that speech, uh, has uh, helped to repopularize the, uh, the speech, man in the arena. Or, uh, uh, But tomorrow, I do believe, perhaps for the first time since Theodore Roosevelt gave the oration on April 23rd, 1910 in Paris, we're going to read the whole speech, hear that part of the man in the arena in context of that great speech. And I was just sharing with a dear friend here in Medora yesterday, one of the wonderful things about uh, the latter portion, the climax, the summing up statement that Theodore Roosevelt makes in that speech, this young American preaching to the uh, Europe of old. He models one of his examples of good citizenship and, and proper conduct. It's a ranching story from his time in the Badlands uh, here in Dakota. Uh, so then uh, briefer programs in the spirit of uh, uh, the uh, idea that we might like you to listen along uh, and not be uh, worn out by the length of the program. On Friday, April 24th, uh, the wonderful anniversary of the laying of the cornerstone uh, at uh, Gardner, Montana, uh, what is today Roosevelt Arch. 
uh, on April 24th in 1903. And on that same date, April 24th, 1906, President Roosevelt remarks on the occasion of the reinternment of the remains of Captain John Paul Jones beneath the uh, chapel at the Naval Academy. We wrap up the week on Saturday, celebrating the 73rd anniversary of the creation of Theodore Roosevelt National Memorial Park. On April 25th, 1947, after a five-year campaign by North Dakota Representative William Lemke, President Truman established the South Unit of Theodore Roosevelt National Memorial Park, the only national memorial park ever established. Today, Teddy Roosevelt in the Badlands, and there's no one uh, better to uh, introduce us to Theodore Roosevelt in the Badlands than Rolf Sletten, uh, a dear friend and historian. Uh, we're going to uh, read a preface from uh, uh, Rolf Sletten's uh, recent publication and Medora publication, Roosevelt's Ranches, Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn. Uh, but first, a, a quick review of uh, some of these uh, dates in history that uh, uh, find themselves connected to the life and legacy of Theodore Roosevelt. On this date, April 22nd, in the year 1500, the Portuguese explorer Pedro Alvarez Cabral uh, claims Brazil for Portugal after uh, landing near what he would call Mount Pascal. Of course, 413 years later, Theodore Roosevelt explores with the great Brazilian patriot uh, uh, Colonel Candido Hondon. Uh, they explore the River of Doubt. If you'd like to read a wonderful page-turner about Theodore Roosevelt's explorations in Brazil, get The River of Doubt by Candace Millard. And uh, then join us for a tour of Brazil, May 2021, with our friends at uh, Direct Travel and uh, with our friends from the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation. April 22nd, 1836, this was alluded to yesterday, uh, the Battle of San Jacinto in Texas, April 21st of that year. The following day, Santa Ana discovered amongst the uh, Mexican prisoners and uh, uh, the birth of the Texas Republican uh, Republic uh, subsequent uh, to those events. April 22nd, 1864, the United States Congress passes the Coinage Act of 1864 that mandates that the inscription in God We Trust be placed on all coins minted as United States currency. Little known, perhaps, that Theodore Roosevelt during his presidency actually floated the idea, or at least expressed the opinion, that the words, in God we trust, should not be upon our coinage, that it was a sacrilege. Uh, and uh, it, uh, it gets into this uh, wonderful conversation one might have about uh, uh, the religious uh, ethic of Theodore Roosevelt. April 22nd, 1876, the first game in history of the National League was played at the Jefferson Street Grounds in Philadelphia. That, of course, was the uh, centennial year and the hosting of the centennial uh, exposition in Philadelphia in 1876. So interesting that the first baseball game, if you haven't uh, uh, noticed yet, I am jonesing for the national pastime of baseball. April 22nd, 1889, at noon, thousands rushed to claim land in the land rush of 1889, the great Oklahoma land rush of 1889. Within hours, the cities of Oklahoma City and Guthrie are formed with populations of at least 10,000 souls. And of course, Oklahoma statehood, the 48th star added to the flag during Theodore Roosevelt's presidency. April 22, 1908, death of Henry Campbell Bannerman, uh, the Scottish-English merchant who would rise to be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom for several years during Theodore Roosevelt's presidential administration. 
the uh, forging of the special relationship with the United Kingdom. Uh, indeed, the negotiations for the ultimate uh, boundary between Alaska and Canada forged during this time, during which it was uh, Canada was uh, administered uh, by the uh, uh, British government. So uh, this was certainly a long way from the old 54, 40 or, uh, uh, or fight, uh, the uh, rallying cry of Polk and the Jacksonian Democrats in 1884, defeating Henry Clay and the Whigs. 5440 would have been a, a northern boundary well north uh, through British Columbia up into, the, I think, the Northwest Territories, just south of the uh, Alaskan Peninsula. And the uh, uh, and eventually the, uh, uh, the, the idea that we might actually go to war with the United Kingdom uh, and invade Canada it was still something that was on the heart and on the mind of young Theodore Roosevelt when he was a cattle rancher here writing to his friend Henry Cabot Lodge that if some sort of war broke out, Theodore Roosevelt didn't really care where that war would be, but he had ideas that if, if war came with uh, Canada, that uh, he'd be ready to go. April 22nd, 1984, the death of Ansel Adams, the American photographer and environmentalist, again, born in 1902 during Teddy Roosevelt's administration, a, a young boy uh, coming of age uh, in the time of Theodore Roosevelt, and here of photography, certainly in uh, his photographs of the uh, Western parks, uh, certainly akin to uh, Bierstadt's paintings of a century before, uh, a way that people could visit the parks and nature uh, through, uh, through artwork. And then how appropriately, uh, uh, 14 years prior to the death of Ansel Adams, on April 22nd, 1970, the first Earth Day, uh, conducted as a, a collegiate teach-in, uh, uh, now uh, celebrated uh, throughout the world, uh, and uh, an advocate uh, of Earth Day, Senator Gaylord Nelson of Wisconsin, one of the early advocates of Earth Day. All right, we're going to get to our readings, uh, Teddy Talks for today's. And, and again, the concept is to uh, not just read of Theodore Roosevelt, but to uh, read his own words. And uh, I'll do so, but first to put into context a little bit of that question of uh, why Medora, why the Badlands? Why indeed has the state of North Dakota and leadership from throughout the country identified the Badlands of North Dakota as the fitting and proper place for a Theodore Roosevelt Presidential Library and Museum? Well, perhaps it's uh, answered uh, on the uh, cover, the beautiful cover of Rolf Sletten's book, Roosevelt's Ranches, the story of the Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn, uh, this uh, uh, wonderful uh, painting, Theodore Roosevelt, glancing down at the little Missouri. Here, the romance of my life began. Uh, Theodore Roosevelt famously said in Fargo in 1910 that he would have never been president but for his experiences in North Dakota. Uh, so from this great, beautiful book, by the way, fantastic photographs and, and illustrations. And, and I do love, because Theodore Roosevelt's time here really was in great part cowboy time, Here's one of the Frederick Remington drawings that uh, graces uh, Rolf's book. And of course, Remington uh, illustrating uh, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's early writings uh, about life in the Badlands. And, uh, well, here, uh, from Rolf Sletten, some words that put into context for us this uh, wonderful uh, place of the Badlands of North Dakota and their relationship to the man uh, who was Theodore Roosevelt. In, 18, in the 1880s, Theodore Roosevelt operated two large cattle ranches in the heart of the North Dakota Badlands, 
Both ranches lay on the banks of the legendary Little Missouri River. The Chimney Butte Ranch, more often known as the Maltese Cross, was built about seven miles south of the historic town of Medora. The famous Elkhorn lay about 22 miles to the north. Each of the ranches had its own unique personality. While both ranches supported large cattle herds, the Maltese Cross was always the real center of Roosevelt's ranching operations. According to a cowboy named George Myers, quote, all of the bronco busting, roping, and so on, unquote, was done there. Myers exaggerated to some extent, but he was correct in his claim that the Maltese Cross was a far bigger cattle operation than the Elkhorn. It also served as the staging area for some of Roosevelt's biggest hunting expeditions. The Maltese Cross was a rough place virtually untouched by feminine hands, but it was run by real cattlemen and clearly represented Roosevelt's best chance at making money in the Badlands. By the summer of 1885, Roosevelt regarded the remote and secluded Elkhorn as his, quote, home ranch. Though it was a smaller ranching operation, it was extremely important to Roosevelt for other reasons. This was his refuge. Here he found the solitude he needed to grieve the loss of his wife and mother, to write his books, and of course, to hunt. Roosevelt ultimately had four to 5,000 head of cattle in the Badlands. He participated in massive roundups and spent countless hours in the saddle, enduring brutal cold, blistering heat, and terrifying stampedes. He fought for his life in the raging Little Missouri River and pursued dangerous outlaws across the Badlands. He hunted buffalo, elk, deer, antelope, or bighorn sheep almost constantly, all the while living the strenuous life he so admired. In the process, Theodore Roosevelt healed his wounded soul, built himself up physically, learned to live with tough men who cared not at all for his status on the East Coast and gathered the experiences that became the basis for three of his best books. Perhaps most importantly, he saw firsthand that if our forests and grasslands were not preserved and protected, they would soon be destroyed. The ranches changed Theodore Roosevelt, shaped his policies, and ultimately influenced the course of United States history, particularly regarding the conservation and preservation of our natural resources. For all of these reasons, it has been said that the Elkhorn and the Maltese Cross are the two most sacred places in North Dakota. Whether or not it is so is, of course, a matter of individual opinion, wholly dependent on one's own beliefs and values. But anyone with any understanding of the ranches and their significance must at least agree that they are very special places. Theodore Roosevelt certainly thought so. Even after becoming President of the United States, Theodore Roosevelt felt that the best days of his incredibly eventful life were the days he spent on the Maltese Cross and the Elkhorn. North Dakotans are proud to point out that Roosevelt once said that had it not been for the time he spent in North Dakota, he never would have become President of the United States. It's not just a great quote. When Roosevelt made that statement, he meant that for the experience he had on his Dakota ranches, he never would have raised the Rough Riders. Because of his fame as leader of the Rough Riders, he was elected governor of New York. Had he not been governor of New York, the politicians would not have made him vice president of the United States, and had he not been vice president, then he would not have become president. 
It may be so, but his statement was made during a speech in Fargo, and so it will always be clouded by the suspicion that T.R. might have been pandering to the hometown crowd. Much more telling is the statement he made to Albert Fall of New Mexico. In a private conversation with his friend, T.R. said, quote, Do you know what chapter or experience in all my life I would choose to remember were the alternative forced upon me to recall one portion of it and to have erased from my memory all the other experiences? I would take the memory of my life on the ranch with its experiences close to nature and among the men who lived nearest her, unquote. By his own declaration, Theodore Roosevelt valued the time he spent on his ranches more than he valued his experiences in the White House and more than he valued his time with the Rough Riders. These are very special places indeed, places to be cherished, jealously protected, and carefully preserved for all time. So our thanks to the uh, National Park Service that preserves the uh, Elkhorn Ranch site and the Maltese Cross Cabin that was moved from its original location sent during Teddy Roosevelt's presidency to the World's Fair, the uh, St. Louis Exposition of 1904, the following year out to Portland's celebration of Lewis and Clark in 1905, for decades on the lawn at the state capitol grounds in Bismarck, and for decades now back here in the beautiful Badlands. And, and our thanks then as well to John Hild, the rancher, the man of Medora in the Little Missouri, who ranches uh, along what was uh, the Maltese cross the Chimney Butte Ranch years ago and, and uses the Maltese cross brand. Theodore Roosevelt's autobiography, unlike most, he wrote a great deal about his adventures here, but his autobiography came out in 1913. Uh, perhaps there was a future presidential run still in his mind uh, in 1913, being not yet 55 years old at the publication of this book. But uh, it wasn't one of these uh, biographies that's uh, pumped out quickly, that's a, a puff piece for a, a presidential aspirant. It's not to be put into that category at all. It is also a uh, cautious uh, uh, telling of some tales in the sense that, uh, well, most historians will point out that nowhere in this biography does uh, autobiography, does Theodore Roosevelt mention his uh, first wife, Alice, it's my recollection as well that uh, he does not mention his unsuccessful candidacy uh, for the New York mayorship. He speaks of plenty of uh, political uh, wins and losses, uh, practical idealism, I think, being one of those chapters. Uh, but uh, here, a reading in full of the chapter in Cowboyland from 1913. I'm going to read the chapter in full. Some of you who've been uh, kind listeners to Teddy Talks might like to digest this reading in two or more parts. And again, my thanks to our friends at the Theodore Roosevelt Medora Foundation who are making this available uh, on Spotify and on YouTube. Search for Teddy Talks and, and uh, feel free to, uh, I won't be uh, uh, disappointed at all if you want to take today's reading or tomorrow's reading of the Man in the Arena speech, Citizenship in a Republic, in two bites rather than one in cowboy land. Though I had previously made a trip into the then territory of Dakota beyond the Red River, it was not until 1883 that I went to the Little Missouri, and there took hold of two cattle ranches, the Chimney Butte and the Elkhorn. 
It was still the Wild West in those days, the Far West, the West of Owen Wister's stories and Frederick Remington's drawings, the West of the Indian and the Buffalo Hunter, the Soldier and the Cow Puncher. That land of the West is gone now, gone, gone with lost Atlantis, gone to the Isle of Ghosts and of strange dead memories. It was a land of vast silent spaces, of lonely rivers, and of plains where the wild game stared at the passing horsemen. It was a land of scattered ranches, of herds of long-horned cattle, and of reckless riders who, unmoved, looked in the eyes of life or of death. In that land we led a free and hardy life, with horse and with rifle. We worked under the scorching midsummer sun, when the wide plains shimmered and wavered in the heat, we knew the freezing misery of riding night guard round the cattle in the late fall roundup. In the soft springtime, the stars were glorious in our eyes uh, each night before we fell asleep. And in the winter, we rode through the blinding blizzards when the driven snow dust burnt our faces. There were monotonous days as we guided the trail cattle or the beef herds hour after hour at the slowest of walks and minutes or hours of teeming with excitement as we stopped stampedes or swam the herds across rivers, treacherous with quicksands or brimmed with running ice. We knew toil and hardship and hunger and thirst. We saw men die violent deaths as they worked among the horses and cattle or fought in evil feuds with one another. But we felt the beat of hearty life in our veins and ours was the glory of work and the joy of living. It was right and necessary that this life should pass, for the safety of our country lies in its being made the country of the small homemaker. The great unfenced ranches in the days of free grass necessarily represented a temporary stage in our history. The large migratory flocks of sheep, each guarded by the hired shepherds of absentee owners, were the first enemies of the cattlemen and owing to the way they ate out the grass and destroyed all other vegetation, these roving sheep bands represented little of permanent good to the country. But the homesteaders, the permanent settlers, the men who took up each his own farm on which he lived and brought up his family, these represented from the national standpoint the most desirable of all possible users of and dwellers on the soil, their advent meant the breaking up of the big ranches, and the change was a national gain, although to some of us an individual loss. I first reached the Little Missouri on a Northern Pacific train about three in the morning of a cool September day in 1883. Aside from the station, the only building was a ramshackle structure called the Pyramid Park Hotel. I dragged my duffel bag thither, and hammered at the door until the frowsy proprietor appeared, muttering oaths. He ushered me upstairs, where I was given one of the fourteen beds in the room, which by itself constituted the entire upper floor. Next day I walked over to the abandoned army post, and after some hours among the grey log shacks, a ranchman who had driven into the station agreed to take me out to his ranch, the Chimney Butte Ranch, where he was living with his brother, and their partner. The ranch was a log structure with a dirt roof, a corral for the horses nearby, 
and a chicken house jabbed against the rear of the ranch house. Inside, there was only one room, with a table, three or four chairs, a cooking stove, and three bunks. The owners were Sylvie and Joe Ferris and William J. Merrifield. Later, all three of them held my commissions while I was president. Merrifield was Marshal of Montana, and as presidential elector, cast the vote of that state for me in 1904. Sylvain Ferris was land officer in North Dakota, and Joe Ferris postmaster at Medora. There was a fourth man, George Meyer, who also worked for me later. That evening, we all played old sledge around the table, and at one period, the game was interrupted by a frightful squawking outside, which told us that a bobcat had made a raid on the chicken house. After a buffalo hunt with my original friend, Joe Ferris, I entered into partnership with Merrifield and Sylvain Ferris, and we started a cow ranch with the Maltese Cross brand, always known as Maltese Cross, by, by the way, as the general impression along the Little Missouri was that Maltese must be a plural. Twenty-nine years later, my four friends of that night were delegates to the first progressive national convention at Chicago. They were among my most constant companions for the few years next, succeeding the evening when the bobcat interrupted the game of Old Sledge. I lived and worked with them on the ranch, with them and many others like them on the roundup, and I brought out from Maine in order to start the Elkhorn Ranch lower down the river, my two backwoods friends Sewell and Dow. My brands for the lower ranch were the Elkhorn and Triangle, I do not believe there ever was any life more attractive to a vigorous young fellow than life on a cattle ranch in those days. It was a fine, healthy life, too. It taught a man self-reliance, hardihood, and the value of instant decision. In short, the virtues that ought to come from life in the open country. I enjoyed the life to the full. After the first year, I built on the Elkhorn Ranch a long, low ranch house of hewn logs with a veranda and with, in addition to the other rooms, a bedroom for myself and a sitting room with a big fireplace. I got out a rocking chair. I am very fond of rocking chairs and enough books to fill two or three shelves and a rubber bathtub so that I could get a bath. And then I do not see how anyone could have lived more comfortably. We had buffalo robes and bearskins of our own killing. We always kept the house clean, using the word in a rather large sense. There were at least two rooms that were always warm, even in the bitterest weather, and we had plenty to eat. Commonly, the mainstay of every meal was game of our own killing, usually antelope or deer, sometimes grouse or ducks, and occasionally in the earlier days, buffalo or elk. We also had flour and bacon, sugar, salt, and canned tomatoes. And later, when some of the men married and brought out their wives, we had all kinds of good things, such as jams and jellies made from the wild plums and the buffalo berries, and potatoes from the forlorn little garden patch. Moreover, we had milk. Most ranchmen at that time never had milk. I knew more than one ranch with 10,000 head of cattle where there was not a cow that could be milked. We made up our minds that we would be more enterprising. Accordingly, we started to domesticate some of the cows. 
Our first effort was not successful, chiefly because we did not devote needed time and patience to the matter. We found that to race a cow two miles at full speed on horseback, then rope her, throw her, and turn her upside down to milk her, while exhilarating as a pastime, was not productive of results. Gradually, we accumulated tame cows, and after we had thinned out the bobcats and coyotes, more chickens. The ranch house stood on the brink of a low bluff overlooking the broad, shallow bed of the Little Missouri, through which at most seasons there ran only a trickle of water, while in times of freshet it was filled brimful with the boiling, foaming, muddy torrent. There was no neighbor for ten or fifteen miles on either side of me. The river twisted down in long curves between narrow bottoms bordered by sheer cliff walls. For the badlands, a chaos of peaks, plateaus, and ridges rose abruptly from the edges of the level, tree-clad, or grassy alluvial meadows. In front of the ranch house veranda was a row of cottonwood trees with gray-green leaves which quivered all day long if there was a breath of air. From these trees came the faraway melancholy cooing of morning doves, and little owls perched in them and called tremulously at night. In the long summer afternoons, we would sometimes sit on the piazza, when there was no work to be done, for an hour or two at a time, watching the cattle on the sandbars and sharply channeled and strangely carved amphitheater of cliffs across the bottom opposite. While the vultures wheeled overhead, their black shadows gliding across the glaring white of the dry riverbed. Sometimes from the ranch we saw a deer, and once when we needed meat I shot one across the river as I stood on the piazza. In the winter, in the days of iron cold, when everything was white under the snow, the river lay in its bed fixed and immovable as a bar of bent steel, and then at night wolves and lynxes traveled up and down it as if it had been a highway passing in front of the ranch house. Often in the late fall or early winter, after a hard day's hunting, or when returning from one of the winter line camps, we did not reach the ranch until hours after sunset. And after the weary tramping in the cold, it was keen pleasure to catch the first red gleam of the firelit windows across the snowy wastes. The Elkhorn Ranch House was built mainly by Sewell and Dow, who, like most men from the Maine woods, were mighty with the axe. I could chop fairly well for an amateur, but I could not do one-third the work they could. One day, when we were cutting down the cottonwood trees to begin our building operations, I heard someone ask Dow what the total cut had been. And Dow, not realizing that I was within in hearing, answered, Well, Bill cut down 53, I cut 49, and the boss, he beavered down 17. Those who have seen the stump of a tree which has been gnawed down by a beaver will understand the exact force of the comparison. In those days on a cow ranch, the men were apt to be away on the various roundups at least half the time. It was interesting and exciting work, and except for the lack of sleep on the spring and summer roundups, it was not exhausting work compared to lumbering or mining or blacksmithing. To sit in the saddle is an easy form of labor. The ponies were, of course, grass-fed and unshod. Each man, each man had his own string of nine or ten. One pony would be used for the morning work, one for the afternoon, 
neither would be again be used for the next three days. A separate pony was kept for night riding. The spring and early summer roundups were especially for the branding of calves. There was much hard work and some risk on a roundup, but also much fun. The meeting place was appointed weeks beforehand, and all the ranchmen of the territory to be covered by the roundup sent their representatives. There were no fences in the West that I knew, and their place was taken by the cowboy and the branding iron. The cattle wandered free. Each calf was branded with the brand of the cow it was following. Sometimes in winter, there was what we called line riding. That is, camps were established, and the line riders traveled a definite beat across the desolate wastes of snow to and fro from one camp to another to prevent the cattle from drifting. But as a rule, nothing was done to keep the cattle in any one place. In the spring, there was a general roundup in each locality. Each outfit took part in its own roundup, and all the outfits of a given region combined to send representatives to the two or three roundups that covered the neighborhoods nearby into which their cattle might drift. For example, our little Missouri roundup generally worked down the river from a distance of some 50 or 60 miles above my ranch towards the Kildeer Mountains, about the same distance below. In addition, we would usually send representatives to the Yellowstone Roundup and to the Roundup along the Upper Little Missouri. And moreover, if we heard that cattle had drifted perhaps toward the Indian Reservation southeast of us, we would send a wagon and rider after them. At the meeting point, which might be in the valley of a half-dry stream or in some broad bottom of the river itself, or perchance by a couple of ponds under some queerly shaped butte that was a landmark for the region roundabout, we would all gather on the appointed day. The chuck wagons containing the bedding and food, each drawn by four horses and driven by the teamster cook, would come jolting and rattling over the uneven sward. Accompanying each wagon were eight or ten riders, the cowpunchers, while their horses, a band of a hundred or so, were driven by the two herders, one of whom was known as the Day Wrangler, and one as the Night Wrangler. The men were lean, sinewy fellows, accustomed to riding half-broken horses at any speed over any country by day or night. They wore flannel shirts with loose handkerchiefs knotted round their necks, broad hats, high-heeled boots with jingling spurs, and sometimes leather chaps, although often they merely had their trousers tucked into the tops of their high boots. There was a good deal of rough horseplay, and as with any other gathering of men or boys of high animal spirits, the horseplay sometimes became very rough indeed. And as the men usually carried revolvers, and as there were occasionally one or two noted gunfighters among them, there was now and then a shooting affray. A man who was a coward, or who shirked his work, had a bad time, of course. A man could not afford to let himself be bullied or treated as a butt. And on the other hand, if he was looking for a fight, he was certain to find it. But my own experience was that if a man did not talk until his associates knew him well and liked him, and if he did his work, he never had any difficulty in getting on. In my own roundup district, I speedily grew to be friends with most of the men. When I went among strangers, I always had to spend 24 hours in living down the fact that I wore spectacles remaining as long as I could, judiciously deaf to any side remarks about four eyes, unless it became evident that my being quiet was misconstrued 
that it was better to bring matters to a head at once. If, for instance, I was sent off to represent the Little Missouri brands on some neighboring roundup, such as the Yellowstone, I usually showed that kind of diplomacy, which consists in not uttering one word that can be avoided. I would probably have a couple of days' solitary ride, mounted on one horse and driving eight or ten others uh, before me, one of them carrying my bedding. Loose horses drive best at a trot or canter, and if a man is traveling alone in this fashion, it is a good thing to have them reach the campground sufficiently late to make them desire to feed and sleep where they are until morning. In consequence, I never spent more than two days on the journey from whatever point was at which I left the Little Missouri, sleeping the one night for as limited a number of hours as possible. As soon as I reached the meeting place, I would find uh, out the wagon to which I was assigned. Riding to it, I turned my horses into the saddle band and reported to the wagon boss or in his absence to the cook, always a privileged character who was allowed and expected to order men around. He would usually grumble savagely and profanely about my having been put with his wagon, but this was merely conventional on his part, and if I sat down and said nothing, he would probably soon ask me if I wanted anything to eat, to which the correct answer was that I was not hungry and would wait until mealtime. The bedding rolls of the riders would be strewn round the grass, and I would put mine down a little outside the ring, where I would not be in anyone's way, with my six or eight branding irons beside it, the, the men would ride in, laughing and talking with one another, and perhaps nodding to me. One of their number, usually the wagon foreman, might put some question to me as to what brands I represented, but no other would, would, word would be addressed to me, nor would I be expected to volunteer any conversation. Supper would consist of bacon, Dutch oven bread, and possibly beef. Once I won the good graces of my companions at the outset, by appearing with two antelope which I had shot. After supper, I would roll up in my bedding and as soon as possible, and the others would follow suit at their pleasure. At three in the morning or thereabouts, at a yell from the cook, all hands would turn hurriedly out. Dressing was a simple affair. Then each man rolled and corded his bedding. If he did not, the cook would leave it behind and he would go without any for the rest of the trip and came to the fire where he picked out a tin cup, tin plate, and knife and fork, helped himself to coffee and to whatever food there was, and ate it standing or squatting as best suited him. Dawn was probably breaking by this time, and the trampling of unshod hooves showed that the night wrangler was bringing in the pony herd. Two of the men would then run ropes from the wagon at right angles to one another, and into this as a corral the horses would be driven, each man might rope one of his own horses, or more often point it out to the most skillful roper of the outfit, who would rope it for him. For if the man was an unskillful roper and roped the wrong horse, or roped the horse in the wrong place, there was a chance of the whole herd stampeding. Each man then saddled and bridled his horse. This was usually followed by some resolute bucking on the part of two or three of the horses, especially in the early days of each roundup. The bucking was always a source of amusement to all the men whose horses did not buck, and these fortunate ones would gather round giving ironical advice, and especially adjuring the rider not to go to leather, that is, not to steady himself in the saddle by catching hold of the saddle horn. 
As soon as the men had mounted, the whole outfit started on the long circle, the morning circle. Usually, the ranch foreman who bossed a given wagon was put in charge of the men of one group by the roundup foreman. He might keep his men together until they had gone some 10 or 15 miles from camp, and then drop them in couples at different points. Each couple made its way toward the wagon, gathering all the cattle it could find. The morning's ride might last six or eight hours, and it was still longer before some of the men got in. Singly and in twos and threes, they appeared from every quarter of the horizon, the dust rising from the hooves of the steers and bulls, the cows and calves they had collected. Two or three of the men were left to take care of the herd while the others changed horses, ate a hasty dinner, and then came out to the afternoon work. This consisted of each man in succession being sent into the herd, usually with a companion, to cut out the cows of his brand or brands which were followed by unbranded calves, and also to cut out any mavericks or unbranded yearlings. We worked each animal gently out to the edge of the herd, and then with a sudden dash it took off at a run. It was always desperately anxious to break back and rejoin the herd, there was much breakneck galloping and twisting and turning before its desire was thwarted and it was driven to join the rest of the cut, that is, the other animals which had been cut out and which were being held by one or two other men. Cattle hate being alone, and it was no easy matter to hold the first one or two that were cut out, but soon they got a little herd of their own and then they were contented. When the cutting out had all been done, the calves were branded and all misadventures of the calf wrestlers, the men who seized, threw, and held each calf when roped by the mounted roper, were hailed with yelling laughter. Then the animals, which for one reason or another it was desired to drive along with the roundup, were put into one herd and left in charge of a couple of night guards, and the rest of us would loaf back to the wagon for supper and bed. By this time, I would have been accepted as one of the rest of the outfit, and all strangeness would have passed off. The attitude of my fellow cowpunchers being one of friendly forgiveness, even toward my spectacles. Night guards for the cattle herd were then assigned by the captain of the wagon, or perhaps by the roundup foreman, according to the needs of the case. The guards standing for two hours at a time from eight in the evening till four in the morning, the first and last watches were preferable, because sleep was not broken as in both of the other two. If nothing went well, the cattle would soon bed down, and nothing further would occur until morning, when there was a repetition of the work, the wagon moving each day eight or ten miles to some appointed camping place. Each man would picket his nice night horse near the wagon, usually choosing the quietest animal in his string for that purpose, because to saddle and mount a mean horse at night is not pleasant. When utterly tired, it was hard uh, to have to get up for one's trick at night herd. Nevertheless, on ordinary nights, the two hours round the cattle in the still darkness were pleasant. The loneliness under the vast empty sky, and the silence in which the breathing of the cattle sounded loud, and the alert readiness to meet any emergency which might suddenly arise out of the formless night, all combined to give one a sense of subdued interest. Then one soon got to know the cattle of marked individuality, the ones that led the others into mischief, and one also grew to recognize the traits they all possessed in common, 
and the impulses which, for instance, made a whole herd get up towards midnight, each beast turning round and then lying down again. But by the end of the watch, each rider had studied the cattle into it through monotonous and heartily welcomed his relief guard. A newcomer, of course, had any amount to learn, and sometimes the simplest things were those which brought him to grief. One night, early in my career, I failed satisfactorily to identify the direction in which I was to go in order to reach the night herd. It was a pitch dark night. I managed to get started wrong, and I never found either the herd or the wagon again until sunrise, when I was greeted with a withering scorn by the injured cowpuncher who had been obliged to stand double guard because I failed to relieve him. There were other misadventures that I met with uh, where the excuse was greater. The punchers on night guard usually rode round the cattle in reverse directions, calling and singing to them if the beast seemed restless to keep them quiet. On rare occasions, something happened that made the cattle stampede. And then the duty of the riders was to keep with them as long as possible and try gradually to get control of them. One night, there was a heavy storm and all of us who were at the wagons were obliged to turn out hastily to help the night herders. After a while, there was a terrific peal of thunder. The lightning struck right by the herd, and away all the beasts went, heads and horns and tails in the air. For a minute or two, I could make out nothing except the dark forms of the beasts running on every side of me, and I should have been sorry if my horse had stumbled, for those behind would have trodden me down. Then the herd split, part going to one side, while the other part seemingly kept straight ahead, and I galloped as hard as ever beside them. I was trying to reach the point, the leading animals, in order to turn them, when suddenly there was a tremendous splashing in front. I could dimly make out that the cattle immediately ahead and to one side of me were disappearing, and the next moment the horse and I went off a cut bank into the little Missouri. I bent away back in the saddle, and though the horse almost went down, he just recovered himself, and plunging and struggling through the water and quicksand, we made the other side. Here I discovered that there was another cowboy with the same part of the herd that I was with, but almost immediately we separated. I galloped hard through the bottom covered with big cottonwood trees, and stopped the part of the herd that I was with, but very soon they broke on me again, and repeated this twice. Finally, toward morning, the few I had left came to a halt. It had been raining hard for some time. I got off my horse and leaned against a tree, but before long the infernal cattle started on again, and I had to ride after them. Dawn came soon after this, and I was able to make out where I was and head the cattle back, collecting other little bunches as I went. After a while, I came on a cowboy on foot, carrying his saddle on his head. He was my companion of the previous night. His horse had gone full speed into a tree and killed itself, the man, however, not being hurt. I could not help him as I had all I could do to handle the cattle. When I got them to the wagon, most of the other men had already come in and the riders were just starting on the long circle. One of the men changed my horse for me while I ate a hasty breakfast and then we were off for the day's work. At only about half of the night, uh, or as only about 
half of the night herd had been brought back. The circle riding was particularly heavy, and it was ten hours before we were back at the wagon. We then changed horses again and worked the whole herd until after sunset, finishing just as it grew too dark to do anything more. By this time, I had been nearly forty hours in the saddle, changing horses five times, and my clothes had thoroughly dried on me, and I fell asleep as soon as I touched the bedding. Fortunately, some men who had gotten in late in the morning had had their sleep during the daytime, so that the rest of us escaped night guard and were not called until four next morning. Nobody ever gets enough sleep on a roundup. The above was the longest number of consecutive hours I ever had to be in the saddle. But as I have said, I changed horses five times, and it is a great lightening of labor for a rider to have a fresh horse. Once, when with Sylvain Ferris, I spent about 16 hours on one horse riding 70 or 80 miles. The roundup had reached a place called the Oxbow of the Little Missouri, and we had to ride there to do some work around the cattle and ride back. Another time I was 24 hours on horseback in company with Merrifield without changing horses. On this occasion we did not travel fast. We had been coming back with the wagon from a hunting trip in the Bighorn Mountains. The team was fagged out and we were tired of walking at a snail's pace beside it. When we reached country that the driver thoroughly knew, we thought it safe to leave him. We loped in one night across a distance which it took the wagon the three following days to cover. It was a beautiful moonlight night, and the ride was delightful. All day long we had plodded at a walk, weary and hot. At supper time we had rested two or three hours, and the tough little riding horses seemed as fresh as ever. It was in September. As we rode out of the circle of the firelight, the air was cool in our faces. Under the bright moonlight, and then under the starlight, we loped and cantered mile after mile over the high prairie. We passed bands of antelope and herds of longhorn Texas cattle, and at last, just as the first red beams of the sun flamed over the bluffs in front of us, we rode down into the valley of the Little Missouri, where our ranch house stood. I never became a good roper, nor more than an average rider, according to ranch standards. Of course, a man on a ranch has to ride a good many bad horses, and is bound to encounter a certain number of accidents, and of these I had my share, at one time cracking a rib, and on another occasion the point of my shoulder. We were hundreds of miles from a doctor, and each time, as I went, uh, as I was on the roundup, I had to get through my work for the next few weeks as best I could, until the injury healed of itself. When I had the opportunity, I broke my own horses, doing it gently and gradually, and spending much time over it, and choosing the horses that seemed gentle to begin with. With these horses I never had any difficulty, but frequently there was neither time nor opportunity to handle our mounts so elaborately. We might get a band of horses, each having been bridled and saddled two or three times, but none of them having been broken beyond the extent implied in this bridling and saddling. Then each of us in succession would choose a horse for his string, I as owner of the ranch being given the first choice on each round, so to speak. The first time I was ever on a roundup, Sylvain Ferris, Merrifield, Meyer, and I each chose his string in this fashion. 
Three or four of the animals I got were not easy to ride. The effort both to ride them and to look as if I enjoyed doing so on some cool morning when my grinning cowboy friends had gathered round, quote, to see whether the high-headed bay could buck the boss off, undoubt, doubtless was of benefit to me, but lacked much of being enjoyable. The time I smashed my rib, I was bucked off on a stone. The time I hurt the point of my shoulder, I was riding a big, sulky horse named Ben Butler, which went over backwards with me. When we got up, it still refused to go anywhere. So while I sat it, Sylvain Ferris and George Meyer got the ropes on its neck and dragged it a few hundred yards, choking but stubborn, all four feet firmly planted and plowing the ground. When they released the ropes, it lay down and wouldn't get up. The roundup had started, so Sylvain gave me his horse, Baldy, which sometimes bucked, but never went over backwards, and he got on the now re-arisen Ben Butler. To my discomfiture, Ben started quietly beside us, while Sylvain remarked, quote, why there's nothing the matter with this horse, he's a plumb gentle horse, unquote. Then Ben fell slightly behind, and I heard Sylvain again. That's all right. Come along. Here you go. Go on, you. Hi, hi, fellows. Help me out. He's lying on me. Sure enough, he was. And when we dragged Sylvain from under him, the first thing the rescued Sylvain did was to execute a war dance, spurs and all, on the iniquitous Ben. We could do nothing with him that day. Subsequently, we got uh, him so that we could ride him, but he never became a nice saddle horse. As with all other forms of work, so on the roundup, a man of ordinary power, who nevertheless does not shirk things merely because they are disagreeable or irksome, soon earns his place. There were crack riders and ropers who, just because they felt such overweening pride in their own prowess, were not really very valuable men. Continually on the circles, a cow or a calf would get into some thick patch of bullberry bush and refused to come out. Or when it was getting late, we would pass some bad lands that, that would probably not contain cattle, but might. Or a steer would turn, fighting mad, or a calf grow tired and want to lie down. If in such a case, the man steadily persists in doing the unattractive thing, and after two hours of exasperation and harassment, does finally get the cow out and keep her out of the bullberry bushes, and drives her to the wagon, or find some animals that have been passed by in the fourth or fifth patch of badlands he hunts through, or gets the calf up on his saddle and takes it in anyhow, the foreman soon grows to treat him as having his uses and as being an asset of worth in the roundup, even though neither a fancy roper nor a fancy rider. When at the Progressive Convention last August, I met George Meyer for the first time in many years, and he recalled to me an incident on one roundup where we happened to be thrown together while driving some cows and calves to camp. When the camp was only just across the river, two of the calves positively refused to go any further. He took one of them in his arms, and after some hazardous maneuvering, managed to get on his horse in spite of the objections of the latter, and rode into the river. My calf was too big for such treatment, so in despair I roped it intending to drag it over. However, as soon as I roped it, the calf started bouncing and bleating, and owing to some lack of dexterity on my part, 
suddenly swung round the rear of the horse, bringing the rope under his tail. Down went the tail tight, and the horse went into figures, as the cowpuncher phrase of that day was. There was a cut bank about four feet high on the hither side of the river, and over this the horse bucked. We went into the water with a splash. With a pluck, the calf followed, described a parabola in the air, and landed beside us. Fortunately, this took the rope out from under the horse's tail, but left him thoroughly frightened. He could not do much bucking in the stream, for there were only one or two places where we had to swim, and then shallows were either sandy or muddy. But across we went at speed, and the calf made a wake like Pharaoh's army in the Red Sea. On several occasions we had to fight fire. In the, ge in the geography books of my youth, prairie fires were always portrayed as taking place in long grass, and all living things ran before them. On the northern cattle plains, the grass was never long enough to be a source of danger to man or beast. The fires were nothing like the forest fires in the northern woods, but they destroyed large quantities of feed, and we had to stop them where possible. The process we usually followed was to kill a steer, split it into two lengthwise, and then have two riders drag each half-steer, the rope of one running from his saddle horn to the front leg, and that of the other to the hind leg. One of the men would spur this horse over or through the line of fire, and the two would then ride forward, dragging the steer bloody side downward along the line of the flame, men following on foot with slickers or wet horse blankets to beat out any flickering blaze that was still left. It was exciting work, for, for the fire and the twitching and plucking of the ox carcass over the uneven ground maddened the horse, maddened the fierce little horses, so that it was necessary to do some riding in order to keep them to their work. After a while, it also became very exhausting, the thirst and fatigue being great, as with parched lips and blackened from head to foot, we toiled at our task. In those years, the Stockmen's Association of Montana was a powerful body. I was the delegate to it from the Little Missouri. The meetings that I attended were held in Miles City, at the time a typical cow town. Stockmen of all kinds attended, including the biggest men in the stock business, men like old Conrad Coors, who was and is the finest type of pioneer in all the Rocky Mountain country, and Granville Stewart, who was afterwards appointed minister by Cleveland, I think it was to Argentine, and Hashknife Simpson, a Texan who had brought his cattle, uh, a Texan who had brought his cattle, the Hashknife brand, up the trail into our country. He and I grew to be great friends. I can see him now the first time we met, grinning at me as none too comfortable. I sat a half-broken horse at the edge of a cattle herd we were working, his son, Sloan Simpson, went to Harvard, was one of the first-class men in my regiment, and afterwards held my commission as postmaster at Dallas. At the stockmen's meeting in Miles City, in addition to the big stockmen, there were always hundreds of cowboys galloping up and down the wide, dusty streets at every hour of the day and night. It was a picturesque sight during the three days the meetings lasted. There was always at least one big dance at the hotel. There were few dress suits, but there was perfect decorum at the dance, 
and in the square dances most of the men knew the figures far better than I did. With such a crowd in town, sleeping accommodations of any sort were at a premium, and in the hotel there were two men in every bed. On one occasion I had a roommate who I never saw, because he always went to bed much later than I did, and I always got up much earlier than he did. On the last day, however, he rose at the same time, and I saw that he was a man I knew named Carter, and nicknamed Modesty Carter. He was a stalwart, good-looking fellow, and I was sorry when later I heard that he had been killed in a shooting rock. When I went west, the last great Indian wars had just come to an end, but there were still sporadic outbreaks here and there, and occasionally bands of marauding young braves were a menace to outlying and lonely settlements. Many of the white men were themselves lawless and brutal, and prone to commit outrages on the Indians. Unfortunately, each race tended to hold all the members of the other race responsible for the misdeeds of a few, so that the crime of the miscreant, red or white, who committed the original outrage, too often invited retaliation upon entirely innocent people. And this action would in its turn arouse bitter feelings which found vent in still more indiscriminate retaliation. The first year I was on the Little Missouri, some Sioux bucks ran off all the horses of a buffalo hunter's outfit. One of the buffalo hunters tried to get even by stealing the horses of a Cheyenne hunting party, and when pursued, made for a cow camp, with, as a result, a long-range skirmish between the cowboys and the Cheyennes. One of the latter was wounded, but this particular wounded man seemed to have more sense than the other participants in the chain of wrongdoing, and discriminated among the whites. He came into our camp and had his wound dressed. A year later, I was at a desolate little mud road ranch on the Deadwood Trail, it was kept by a very capable and very forceful woman with sound ideas of justice and abundantly well able to hold her own. Her husband was a worthless devil who finally got drunk on some whiskey he obtained from an outfit of Missouri bullwhackers, that is freighters driving ox wagons. Under the stimulus of the whiskey, he picked a quarrel with his wife and attempted to beat her. She knocked him down with a stove lid lifter the admiring bullwhackers bore him off, leaving the lady in full possession of the ranch. When I visited her, she had a man named Crow Joe working for her, a slab-sided, shifty-eyed person who later, as I heard my foreman explain, quote, skipped the country with a bunch of horses, unquote. The mistress of the ranch made first-class buckskin shirts of great durability. The one she made for me, and which I used for years, was used by one of my sons in Arizona a couple of winters ago. I had ridden down into the country after some lost horses and visited the ranch to get her to make me the buckskin shirt in question. There were, at the moment, three Indians there, Sue, well-behaved and self-respecting, and she explained to me that they had been resting there, waiting for dinner, and that a white man had come along and tried to run off their horses, the Indians were on the lookout, however, and running out, they caught the man. But after retaking their horses and depriving him of his gun, they let him go. Quote, I don't see why they let him go, exclaimed my hostess. I don't believe in stealing Indians' horses any more than white folks. So I told them they could go along and hang him. I'd never cheat. Anyhow, I won't charge them anything for their dinner, unquote, concluded my hostess. 
She was in advance of the usual morality of the time and place, which drew a sharp line between stealing citizens' horses and stealing horses from the government or the Indians. A fairly, a fairly decent citizen, Jap Hunt, who long ago met a violent death, exemplified this attitude towards Indians in some remarks I once heard him make. He had started a horse ranch and had quite honestly purchased a number of broken-down horses of different brands with the view of doctoring them and selling them again. About this time, there had been much horse-stealing and cattle-killing in our territory and in Montana, and under the direction of some of the big cattle growers, a committee of vigilantes had been organized to take action against the rustlers, as the horse thieves and cattle thieves were called. The vigilantes, or stranglers, as they were locally known, did their work thoroughly, but as always happens with bodies of the kind, toward the end they grew reckless in their actions, paid off private grudges, and hung men on slight provocation. Riding into Jap Hunt's ranch, they nearly hung him because he had so many horses of different brands. He was finally let go. He was much upset by the incident and explained again and again, quote, the idea of saying that I was a horse thief, why I never stole a horse in my life, leastways from a white man. I don't count Indians nor the government, of course, unquote. Jap had been reared amongst men still in the stage of tribal morality, and while they recognized their obligations to one another, both the government and the Indians seemed alien bodies in regard to which the laws of morality did not apply. On the other hand, parties of savage young bucks would treat lonely settlers just as badly, and in addition sometimes murder them. Such a party was generally composed of young fellows burning to distinguish themselves some one of their number would have obtained a pass from the Indian agent allowing him to travel off the reservation, which pass would be flourished whenever their action was questioned by bodies of whites of equal strength. I once had a trifling encounter with such a band. I was making my way along the edge of, a, of the Badlands, northward from my lower ranch, and was just crossing a plateau when five Indians rode up over the further rim. The instant they saw me, they whipped out their guns and raced full speed at me, yelling and flogging their horses. I was on a favorite horse, Manitou, who was a wise old fellow with nerves not to be shaken by anything. I at once leaped off him and stood with my rifle ready. It was possible that the Indians were merely making a bluff and intended no mischief, but I did not like their actions, and I thought it likely that if I allowed them to get hold of me, they would at least take my horse and rifle, possibly kill me. So I waited until they were a hundred yards off and then drew a bead on the first. Indians, and for that matter, uh, a matter of that, white men, do not like to ride in on a man who is cool and means shooting. And in a twinkling, every man was lying over the side of his horse, and all five had turned and were galloping backwards, having altered their course as quickly as so many teal ducks. After this, one of them made the peace sign with his blanket first, and then as he rode with me, with his open hand. I halted him at a fair distance and asked him what he wanted. He exclaimed, How? Me good engine, me good engine, and tried to show me the dirty piece of paper on which his agency pass was written. I told him with sincerity that I was glad that he was a good Indian, but that he must not come any closer. He then asked for sugar and tobacco. I told him I had none. 
Another Indian began slowly drifting toward me in spite of my calling out to keep back. So I once more aimed with my rifle, whereupon both Indians slipped to the other side of their horses and galloped off with oaths that did credit to at least one side of their acquaintance with English. I now mounted and pushed over the plateau onto the open prairie. In those days, an Indian, although not as good a shot as a white man, was infinitely better at crawling under and taking advantage of cover. And the worst thing a white man could do was to get into cover. Whereas out in the open, if he kept his head, he had a good chance of standing off even half a dozen assailants. The Indians accompanied me for a couple of miles. Then I reached the open prairie and resumed my northward ride, not being further molested. In the old days, in the ranch country, we depended upon game for fresh meat. Nobody liked to kill a beef, and although now and then a maverick yearling might be killed on the roundup, most of us looked askance at the deed, because if the practice of beef killing was ever allowed to start, the rustlers, the horse thieves, and cattle thieves would be sure to seize on it as an excuse for general slaughter. Getting meat for the ranch usually devolved upon me. I almost always carried a rifle when I rode, either in a scabbard under my thigh or across the pommel. Often I would pick up a deer or antelope while about my regular work, when visiting a line camp or riding after the cattle. At other times, I would make a day's trip after them. In the fall, we sometimes took a wagon and made a week's hunt, returning with eight or ten deer carcasses, and perhaps an elk or a mountain sheep as well. I never became more than a fair hunter, and at times I had most exasperating experiences, either failing to see game which I ought to have seen, or committing some blunder in the stalk or failing to kill when I fired. Looking back, I am inclined to say that if I had any good quality as a hunter, it was that of perseverance. It is dogged It is dogged that does it in hunting as in many other things. Unless in wholly exceptional cases, when we were very hungry, I never killed anything but bucks. Occasionally, I made long trips away from the ranch and among the Rocky Mountains, with my ranch foreman, Merrifield, or in later years with Taswell Woody, John Willis, or John Goff. We hunted bears, both the black and the grizzly, cougars and wolves, and moose, wapiti, and white goat. On one of these trips, I killed a bison bull, and I also killed a bison bull on the Little Missouri, some 50 miles south of my ranch on a trip which Joe Ferris and I took together. It was a rather rough trip, each of us carried only his slicker behind him on the saddle, with some flour and bacon done up in it. We met with all kinds of misadventures. Finally, one night, when we were sleeping by a slimy little prairie pool, where there was not a stick of wood, we had to tie the horses to the horns of our saddles, and then we went to sleep with our heads on the saddles. In the middle of the night, something stampeded the horses, and away they went, with the saddles after them. As we jumped to our feet, Joe eyed me with an evident suspicion that I was the Jonah of our party and said, Oh, Lord, I've never done anything to deserve this. Did you ever do anything to deserve this? In addition to my private duties, I sometimes served as deputy sheriff for the northern end of our county. The sheriff and I crisscrossed in our public and private relations. He often worked for me as a hired hand at the same time that I was his deputy. His name, or at least the name he went by, was Bill Jones, 
and as there were in the neighborhood several Bill Joneses, 3-7 Bill Jones, Texas Bill Jones, and the like, the sheriff was known as Hell-Roaring Bill Jones. He was a thorough frontiersman, excellent in all kinds of emergencies, and a very game man. I became much attached to him. He was a thoroughly good citizen when sober, but he was a little wild when drunk. Unfortunately, toward the end of his life, he got to drinking very heavily. When, in 1905, John Burroughs and I visited the Yellowstone Park, poor Bill Jones, very much down in the world, was driving a team in Gardner outside the park. I had looked forward to seeing him, and he was equally anxious to see me. He kept telling his cronies of our intimacy and of what we were going to do together, and then got drinking. And the result was that by the time I reached Gardner, he had to be carried out and left in the sagebrush. When I came out to the park, I sent out uh, I sent on in advance to tell them to be sure to keep him sober, and they did so. But it was rather a sad interview. The old fellow had gone to pieces, and soon after I left, he got lost in a blizzard and was dead when they found him. Bill Jones was a gunfighter and also a good man with his fists. On one occasion, there was an election in town. There had been many threats that the party of disorder would import section hands from the neighboring railway stations to down our side. I did not reach Medora, the forlorn little cattle town, which was our county seat, until the election was well underway. I then asked one of my friends if there had been any disorder. Bill Jones was standing by. Quote, disorder, hell, said my friend. Bill Jones just stood there with one hand on his gun and the other pointing over toward the new jail whenever any man who didn't have a right to vote came near the polls. There was only one of them tried to vote. Bill knocked him down. Lord, added my friend meditatively, the way that man fell, the way that man fell. Well, struck in Bill Jones, if he hadn't fell, I'd have walked round behind him to see what was propping him up. In the days when I lived on the ranch, I usually spent most of the winter in the east, and then I returned in the early spring. I was always interested in finding out what had happened since my departure. On one occasion, I was met by Bill Jones and Sylvain Ferris, and in the course of our conversation, they mentioned the lunatic. This led to a question on my part, and Sylvain Ferris began the story. Well, you see, he was on the train and he shot the newsboy. At first, they weren't going to do anything to him, for they thought he just had it in for the newsboy. But then somebody said, why, he's plumb crazy, and he's liable to shoot any of us. And then they threw him off the train. It was here at Medora, and they asked if anybody would take care of him. And Bill Jones said he would, because he was the sheriff, and the jail had two rooms, and he was living in one, and would put the lunatic in the other. Here, Bill Jones interrupted. Yes, and more fool me. I wouldn't take charge of another lunatic if the whole county asked me. Why? With the air of a man announcing an astounding discovery. That lunatic didn't have his right senses. He wouldn't eat till me and Snyder got him down on the shavings and made him eat. Snyder was a huge, happy-go-lucky, kind-hearted Pennsylvania Dutchman who was Bill Jones's chief deputy. Bill continued. You know, Snyder's soft-hearted he is, well, he'd think that lunatic looked Pete, and he'd take him out for an errand. Then the boys would get joshing him as to 
how much start he could give him over the prairie and catch him again. Apparently, the amount of the start given the lunatic depended upon the amount of the bet to which the joshing led up. I asked Bill what he would have done if Snyder hadn't caught the lunatic. This was evidently a new idea, and he responded that Snyder always did catch him. Well, but suppose he hadn't caught him. Well, said Bill Jones, if Snyder hadn't caught the lunatic, I'd have wailed hell out of Snyder. Under these circumstances, Snyder ran his best and always did catch the patient. It must not be gathered from this that the lunatic was badly treated. He was well treated. He became greatly attached to both Bill Jones and Snyder, and he objected strongly when, after the frontier theory of treatment of the insane had received a full trial, he was finally sent off to the territorial capital. It was merely that all the relations of life in that place and day were so managed as to give ample opportunity for the expression of individuality, whether in sheriff or ranchman. The local practical joker once attempted to have fun at the expense of the lunatic, and Bill Jones described the result. You know Bixby, don't you? Well, with deep, deep disapproval uh, by Jones, Bixby thinks he is funny, he does. He'd come and he'd wake that lunatic up at night, and then I'd have to get up and soothe him. I fixed Bigs Bixby all right, though. I fastened a rope on the latch. Next time Bixby came, I let the lunatic out on him. He most bit Bixby's nose off. I learned Bixby. Bill Jones had been unconventional in other relations besides that of sheriff. He once casually mentioned to me that he had served on the police force of Bismarck, but he had left because he beat the mayor over the head with his gun one day. He added, quote, the mayor, he didn't mind it, but the superintendent of police said he guessed I'd better resign, unquote. His feeling, obviously, was that the superintendent of police was a martinet, unfit to take large views of life. It was while with Bill Jones that I first made acquaintance with Seth Bullock. Seth was at that time sheriff in the Black Hills District, and a man he had wanted, a horse thief, I finally got, I being at the time deputy sheriff two or three hundred miles to the north. The man went by a nickname which I will call Crazy Steve. A year or two afterwards, I received a letter asking about him from his uncle, a thoroughly respectable man in a western state, and later this uncle and I met at Washington when I was president and he a United States senator. It was sometime after Steve's capture that I went down to Deadwood on business, Sylvain Ferris and I on horseback, while Bill Jones drove the wagon. A little town, Spearfish, I think. After crossing the last 80 or 90 miles of Gumbo Prairie, we met Seth Bullock. We had had rather a rough trip and had lain out for a fortnight, so I suppose we looked somewhat unkempt. Seth received us with rather distant courtesy at first, but unbent when he found out who we were, remarking, uh, quote, You see by your looks, I thought you were some kind of a tin horn gambling outfit and that I might have to keep an eye on you, unquote. He then inquired after the capture of Steve, with a little of the air of one sportsman when another has shot a quail that either might have claimed. My bird, I believe it. Later, Seth Bullock became, and has ever since remained, one of my staunchest and most valued friends. He served as marshal for South Dakota under me as president. When, after the close of my term, I went to Africa on getting back to Europe, I cabled Seth Bullock to bring over Mrs. Bullock 
and meet me in London, which he did. By that time, I felt that I just had to meet my own people and spoke my neighborhood dialect. When serving as deputy sheriff, I was impressed with the advantage the officer of the law has over ordinary wrongdoers, provided he thoroughly knows his own mind. There are exceptional outlaws, men with a price on their heads and of remarkable prowess, who are utterly indifferent to taking life and whose warfare against society is as open as that of a savage on the warpath. The law officer has no advantage whatever over these men, save what his own prowess may or may not give him. Such a man was Billy the Kid, the notorious man-killer and desperado of New Mexico, who was himself finally slain by a friend of mine, Pat Garrett, whom I, when I was president, made collector of customs of El Paso. But the ordinary criminal, even when murderously inclined, feels just a moment's hesitation as to whether he cares to kill an officer of the law engaged in his duty. I took in more than one man who was probably a better man than I with both rifle and revolver. But in each case, I knew what just I wanted to do. And like David Harum, I did it first. Whereas the fraction of a second that the other man hesitated put him in a position where it was useless for him to resist. I owe more than I can ever express to the West, which of course means to the men and women I met in the West. There were a few people of bad type in my neighborhood. That would be true of every group of men, even in a theological seminary. But I could not speak with too great affection and respect of the great majority of my friends, the hard-working men and women who dwelt for a space of perhaps 150 miles along the Little Missouri. I was always as welcome at their houses as they were at mine. Everybody worked. Everybody was willing to help everybody else, and yet nobody asked any favors. The same thing was true of the people whom I got to know 50 miles east and 50 miles west of my own range, and of the men I met on the roundups. They soon accepted me as a friend and fellow worker who stood on an equal footing with them, and I believe that most of them have kept their feeling for me ever since. No guests were ever more welcome at the White House than these old friends of the cattle ranches and the cow camps, the men with whom I had ridden a long circle and eaten at the tailboard of a chuck wagon. Whenever they turned up at Washington during my presidency, I remember one of them who appeared at Washington one day just before lunch, a huge, powerful man who, when I knew him, had been distinctly a fighting character. It happened that on that day another old friend, the British ambassador, Mr. Bryce, was among those coming to lunch. Just before we went in, I turned to my cowpuncher friend and said to him with great solemnity, Remember, Jim, that if you shot at the feet of the British ambassador to make him dance, it would be likely to cause international complications. To which Jim responded with unaffected horror, Why, Colonel, I shouldn't think of it. I shouldn't think of it. Not only did the men and women whom I met in the cow country quite unconsciously help me by the insight which working and living with them enabled me to get into the mind and soul of the average American of the right type, but they helped me in another way. I made up my mind that the men were of just the kind whom it would be well to have with me if ever it came necessary to go to war. When the Spanish War came, I gave this thought practical realization. Fortunately, Worcester and Remington, with pen and pencil, have made these men live as long as our literature lives. 
I have sometimes been asked if Wister's Virginia is not overdrawn, why one of the men I have mentioned in this chapter was in all essentials the Virginian in real life, not only in his force, but in his charm. Half of the men I worked with or played with, and half of the men who soldiered with me afterwards in my regiment might have walked out of Wister's stories or Remington's pictures. There were bad characters in the Western country at that time, of course, and under the conditions of life, they were probably more dangerous than they would have been elsewhere. I hardly ever had any difficulty, however. I never went into a saloon, and in the little hotels I kept out of the bar room unless, as sometimes happened, the bar room was the only room on the lower floor except the dining room. I always endeavored to keep out of a quarrel until self-respect forbade me making any further effort to avoid it, and I very rarely ever had the semblance of trouble. Of course, amusing incidents occurred now and then. Usually these took place when I was hunting lost horses, for in hunting lost horses I was ordinarily alone, and occasionally had to travel a hundred or a hundred and fifty miles away from my own country. On one such occasion, I reached a little cow town long after dark, stabled my horse in an empty outbuilding, and when I reached the hotel, was informed in response to my request for a bed that I could have the last one left, as there was only one other man in it. The room to which I was shown contained two double beds. One contained two men fast asleep, and the other only one man, also asleep. This man proved to be a friend, one of the Bill Joneses, whom I have previously mentioned. I undressed according to the fashion of the day and place. That is, I put my trousers, boots, chaps, and gun down beside, down beside the bed and turned in. A couple of hours later, I was awakened by the door being thrown open and a lantern flashed in my face, the light gleaming on the muzzle of a cocked forty-five. Another man said to the lantern bearer, it ain't him. Uh, at the next moment, my bedfellow was covered with two guns and addressed. Now, Bill, don't make a fuss, but come along quiet. I'm not thinking of making a fuss, said Bill. That's right, was the answer. We're your friends. We don't want to hurt you. We just want you to come along. You know why. And Bill pulled down his trousers and boots and walked out with them. Up to this time, there had not been a sound from the other bed. Now a match was scratched, a candle lit, and one of the men in the other bed looked round the room. At this point, I committed the breach of etiquette of asking questions. I wonder why they took Bill, I said. There was no answer. And I repeated. I wonder why they took Bill. Well, said the man with the candle dryly, I reckon they wanted him. And with that, he blew out the candle and conversation ceased. Later, I discovered that Bill, in a fit of playfulness, had held up the Northern Pacific trainer at a nearby station. This was purely a joke on Bill's part, but the Northern Pacific people uh, possessed a, a less robust sense of humor, and on their complaint that the United States Marshal was sent after Bill on the ground that by delaying the train, he had interfered with the mails. The only time I ever had serious trouble was at an even more primitive little hotel than the one in question. It was also on an occasion when I was out after lost horses. Below the hotel had merely a bar room, a dining room, and a lean-to kitchen. 
Above was a loft with fifteen or twenty beds in it. It was late in the evening when I reached the place. I heard one or two shots in the bar room as I came up, and I disliked going in. But there was nowhere else to go, and it was a cold night. Inside the room were several men, who, including the bartender, were wearing the kind of smile worn by men who were making to believe to like what they don't like. A shabby individual in a broad hat with a cocked gun in each hand was walking up and down the floor, talking with strident profanity. He had evidently been shooting at the clock, which had two or three holes in its face. He was not a bad man of the really dangerous type, the true man-killer type, but he was an objectionable creature, a would-be bad man, a bully who for the moment was having things all his own way. As soon as he saw me, he hailed me as Four Eyes in reference to my spectacles and said Four Eyes is going to treat. I joined in the laugh and got behind the stove and sat down, thinking to escape notice. He followed me, however, and though I tried to pass it off as a jest, this merely made him more offensive, and he stood leaning over me, a gun in each hand, using very foul language. He was foolish to stand so near, and moreover his heels were close together, so that his position was unstable. Accordingly, in response to his reiterated command that I should set up the drinks, I said, Well, if I've got to, I've got to, and rose, looking past him. As I rose, I struck quick and hard with my right, just to one side of the point of his jaw, hitting with my left as I straightened out, and then again with my right. He fired the guns, but I do not know whether this was merely a convulsive action of his hands, or whether he was trying to shoot at me. When he went down, he struck the corner of the bar with his head was not a case in which one could afford to take chances, and if he had moved, I was about to drop on his ribs with my knees. But he was senseless. I took away his guns, and the other people in the room, who were now loud in their denunciation of him, hustled him out and put him in a shed. I got dinner as soon as possible, sitting in a corner of the dining room away from the windows, and then went upstairs to bed where it was dark, so that there would be no chance of anyone shooting at me from the outside. However, nothing happened. When my assailant came to, he went down to the station and left on a freight. As I have said, most of the men of my regiment were just such men as those I knew in the ranch country. Indeed, some of my ranch friends were in the regiment. Fred Herrig, the forest ranger, for instance, in whose company I shot my biggest mountain ram, after the regiment was disbanded, the careers of certain of the men were diversified by odd incidents. Our relations were of the friendliest, and as they explained, they felt, quote, as if I was a father, unquote, to them. The manifestations of this feeling were sometimes less attractive than the phrase sounded, as it was chiefly used by the few who were behaving like very bad children indeed. The great majority of the men, when the regiment disbanded, took up the business of their lives where they had dropped it a few months previously. These men merely tried to help me or help one another as the occasion arose. No man ever had more cause to be proud of his regiment than I had of mine, both in war and in peace. But there was a minority among them who, in certain ways, were unsuited for a life of peaceful regularity, although often enough they had been first-class soldiers. It was from these men that letters came with a stereotyped opening which always caused my heart to sink. Quote, Dear Colonel, I write you because I am in trouble, 
unquote, the trouble might take almost any form. One correspondent continued, quote, I did not take the whores, but they say I did, unquote. Another complained that his mother-in-law had put him in jail for bigamy. In the case of another, the incident was more markworthy. I will call him Gritto. He wrote me a letter beginning, Dear Colonel, I write you because I am in trouble. I have shot a lady in the eye. But Colonel, I was not shooting at the lady, I was shooting at my wife, unquote, which he apparently regarded as a sufficient excuse as between men of the world. I answered that I drew the line at shooting at ladies, and I did not hear any more of the incident for several years. Then, while I was president, a member of the regiment, Major Llewellyn, who was federal district attorney under me in New Mexico, wrote me a letter filled, as his letters usually were, with bits of interesting gossip about the comrades. It ran in part as follows. Quote, Since I last wrote you, Comrade Ritchie has killed a man in Colorado. I understand that the comrade was playing a poker game, and the man sat into the game and used such language that Comrade Ritchie had to shoot. Comrade Webb has killed two men in Beaver, Arizona. Comrade Webb is in the Forest Service, and the killing was in the line of professional duty. I was out of the, at the penitentiary the other day and saw Comrade Gritter, who, you may remember, was put there for shooting his sister-in-law. This was the first information I had as to the identity of the lady who was shot in the eye. Since he was there, in there, Comrade Boyne has run off to Old Mexico with Rito's wife, and the people of Grant County think he ought to be let out, unquote. Evidently, the sporting instincts of the people of Grant County had been roused, and they felt that as Comrade Boyne had had a fair start, the other comrades should be let out in order to see what would happen. The men of the regiment always enthusiastically helped me when I was running for office. On one occasion, Buck Taylor of Texas accompanied me on a trip and made a speech for me. The crowd took to his speech from the beginning and so did I, until the peroration, which ran as follows. My fellow citizens, vote for my colonel. Vote for my colonel, and he will lead you as he led us, like sheep to the slaughter. This hardly seemed a tribute to my military skill, but it delighted the crowd, and as far as I could tell, did me nothing but good. On another tour, when I was running for vice president, a member of the regiment who was along on the train got into a discussion with a populist editor who had expressed an unfavorable estimate of my character, and in the course of the discussion shot the editor, not fatally. We had to leave him to be tried, and as he had no money, I left him $150 to hire counsel, having borrowed the money from Senator Wolcott in Colorado, who was also with me. After election, I received from my friend a letter running, quote, Dear Colonel, I find I will not have to use that $150 you lent me, as we have elected our candidate for district attorney. So I have used it to settle a horse transaction in which I unfortunately became involved, unquote. A few weeks later, however, I received a heartbroken letter setting forth the fact that the district attorney, whom evidently felt uh, to whom he evidently felt to be a cold-blooded formalist, had put him in jail. Then the affair dropped out of sight until two or three years later, when, as president, I visited a town in another state, and the leaders of the delegation which received me included both my correspondent and the editor, now fast friends and both of them my ardent supporters. 
At one of the regimental reunions, a man who had been an excellent soldier in greeting me mentioned how glad he was that the judge had let him out in time to get to the reunion. I asked what was the matter, and he replied with some surprise, Why, Colonel, don't you know I had a difficulty with a gentleman, and, uh, well, I killed the gentleman. But you can see that the judge thought it was all right, or he wouldn't have let me go, unquote. Waving the latter point, I said, How did it happen? How did you do it? Misinterpreting my question as showing an interest only in the technique of the performance, the ex-cowpuncher replied, with a 38 on a 45 caliber frame, Colonel. I chuckled over the answer, and it became proverbial with my family and some of my friends, including Seth Bullock. When I was shot at Milwaukee, Seth Bullock wired an inquiry to which I responded that it was all right, that the weapon was merely, quote, a 38 on a 45 frame. The telegram in some way became public and puzzled outsiders. By the way, both the men of my regiment and the friends I had made in the old days in the West were themselves a little puzzled at the interest shown in my making my speech after being shot. This was what they expected, what they accepted as the right thing for a man to do under the circumstances, a thing the non-performance of which would have been discreditable rather than the performance being creditable. They would not have expected a man to leave a battle, for instance, because of being wounded in such a fashion, and they saw no reason why he should abandon a less important and less risky duty. One of the best soldiers of my regiment was a huge man whom I made marshal of a Rocky Mountain state. He had spent his hot and lusty youth on the frontier during its Viking age, and at that time had naturally taken part in incidents which seemed queer to men, quote, accustomed to die decently of zymotic diseases, unquote. I told him that an effort would doubtless be made to prevent his confirmation by the Senate, therefore that I wanted to know all the facts in his case. Had he played Pharaoh, he had, but it was when everybody played Pharaoh, and he had never played a brace game. Had he killed anybody? Yes, but it was in Dodge City on occasions when he was Deputy Marshal or Town Marshal at a time when Dodge City, now the most peaceful of communities, was the toughest town on the continent and crowded with man-killing outlaws and road agents. He produced telegrams from judges of high character testifying to the need of the actions he had taken. Finally, I said, quote, Now, Ben, how did you lose that half of your ear? Unquote. To which, looking rather shy, he responded, Well, Colonel, it was bit off. How did it happen, Ben? Well, you see, I was sent to arrest a gentleman, and him and me mixed it up a bit, and he bit off my ear. What did you do to the gentleman, Ben? And Ben, looking more coy than ever, responded, Well, Colonel, we broke about even. I forbore to inquire what variety of mayhem he had committed on the gentleman. After considerable struggle, I got him confirmed by the Senate, and he made one of the best marshals in the entire service, exactly as he had already made one of the best soldiers in the regiment. I never wished to see a better citizen, nor a man in whom I would more implicitly trust in every way. When in 1900 I was nominated for vice president, I was sent by the National Committee on a trip into the states of the High Plains and the Rocky Mountains. These had all gone overwhelmingly for Mr. Bryan on the free silver issue four years previously, and it was thought that I, because of my knowledge of and acquaintanceship with the people, might accomplish something towards bringing them back into line. It was an interesting trip, and the monotony usually attended upon such a campaign of political speaking was diversified in vivid fashion 
by occasional hostile audience, one or two of the meetings ended in riots. One meeting was finally broken up by a mob. Everybody fought so that the speaking had to stop. Soon after this, we reached another town where we were told there might be trouble. Here, the local committee included an old, valued friend, a two-gun man of repute, who was not in the least quarrelsome, but who always kept his word. We marched round to the local opera house, which was packed with a mass of men, many of them rather rough-looking. My friend, the two-gun man, sat immediately behind me, a gun on each hip, his arms folded, looking at the audience, fixing his gaze with instant intentness on any section of the house from which there came so much as a whisper. The audience listened to me with rapt attention. At the end, with a pride in my rhetorical powers, which proceeded from a misunderstanding of the situation, I remarked to the chairman, I held that audience well. There wasn't an interruption. To which the chairman replied, Interruption? Well, I guess not. Seth had sent word round that if any son of a gun peeped, he'd kill him. There was one bit of frontier philosophy, which I should like to see imitated in more advanced communities. Certain crimes of revolting baseness and cruelty were never forgiven. But in the case of ordinary offenses, the man who had served his term and who then tried to make good was given a fair chance. And of course, this was equally true of the women. Everyone who has studied the subject at all is only too well aware that the world's offset the world offsets the readiness with which it condones a crime for which a man escapes punishment, but its unforgiving relentlessness to the often far less guilty man who is punished and who therefore has made his atonement. On the frontier, if the man honestly tried to behave himself, there was a generally a disposition to give him fair play and a decent show. Several of the men I knew and whom I particularly liked came in this class. There was one such man in my regiment, a man who had served a term for robbery under arms and who had atoned for it by many years of fine performance of duty. I put him in a high official position. No man under me rendered better service to the state, nor was there any man whom, as soldier, as civil officer, as citizen, and as friend, I valued and respected, and now value and respect more. Now I suppose some good people will gather from this that I favor men who commit crimes, I certainly do not favor them. I have not, a particle, I have not a particle of sympathy with the sentimentality, as I deem it, the mawkishness, which overflows with foolish pity for the criminal, and cares not at all for the victim of the criminal. I am glad to see wrongdoers punished. The punishment is an absolute necessity from the standpoint of society, and I put the reformation of the criminal second to the welfare of society. But I do desire to see the man or woman who has paid the penalty and who wishes to reform given a helping hand. Surely every one of us who knows his own heart must know that he too may stumble and should be anxious to help his brother or sister who has stumbled. When the criminal has been punished, if he then shows a sincere desire to lead a decent and upright life, he should be given the chance, he should be helped and not hindered. And if he makes good, he should receive that respect from others which so often aids in creating self-respect, the most valuable of all possessions. If you've been along for this, the longest of uh, the, uh, the rides with Theodore Roosevelt at Teddy Talks, thanks for sticking through. We'll see you tomorrow 
for a recitation of Citizenship in a Republic. The Man in the Arena, Theodore Roosevelt, April 23rd, 1910, from Paris, France. Until then, goodbye, good luck, have a bully day.